You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 8th of March 2023 on Monocle 24. The Briefing is brought to you in association with Alliance Partners. Hello there and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and ahead in the next 30 minutes, Ukraine denies any involvement in the blowing up of the Nord Stream pipelines. We'll examine what might have happened. Also ahead, protests in Tbilisi turn violent after the Georgian government backs a proposed new law on foreign agents. And our design editor Nick Munis joins me to celebrate the work of the architect David Chipperfield, who's won this year's Pritchker Prize, hasn't he, Nick? He has, and we'll look at some of his projects and, and I guess why the prize matters. And we'll shine a light on the cinema of Bhutan. The reality is that we are a third world country. We are a very poor country. And as with many poor countries, we have this huge, almost like migration of people, ironically leaving the so-called happiest country in search of their happiness in other places. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. Who blew up the Nord Stream pipelines last September? Ukraine has denied it played any role in the attack, which damaged the pipelines intended to carry Russian natural gas to Germany. Kiev's rebuttal follows a report from the New York Times, which cites anonymous US intelligence officials who suggest a pro-Ukrainian group was to blame. Well, to tell us more, I'm joined by Kadri Lik, who's Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, and by Petri Burtsov, who's Monocle's Helsinki correspondent, who's been writing about this story for next month's Monocle magazine. A very good afternoon to you both. Welcome. Good afternoon. Petri, could you just briefly recap what happened that day or that night in September last year? Yes, so um, early um, on in sort of in the middle of the night, early morning, we had a series of uh, explosions in the uh, international international waters just outside the Danish um, island of of, uh, Bornholm. And they were very powerful explosions that could be um, uh, registered on uh, by seismologists up even further north from the from the Arctic um, circle, and um, those explosions um, uh, then destroyed uh, three of the four pipelines. So we have to remember that North, both Nord Stream one and two consist of two parallel pipelines, and three out of those four were uh, were um, destroyed by those explosions. Kadri, and the allegations that are coming out of the United States today, which is citing US intelligence, is that a pro-Ukrainian group might be to blame. I mean, these are serious claims, aren't they? Um, To be honest, it leaves me utterly confused because so far uh, people have been saying that it needs to be a state actor, but uh, no political entrepreneurs, no sort of volunteer groups would be able to accomplish anything like that. So I'm following the story, waiting for further information. It is also interesting where it comes from. So far, these US officials have no names, even even no affiliations, whereas usually US intelligence concerning Ukraine has had a name and, uh, and, and voice uh, when it has been made public, and it has always been quite precise. So it would also be good to see 
that intelligence confirmed by by someone we can identify. Petri, this is a real puzzle, isn't it? As, as Kadri mentioned, up until now, it's been thought that, that only a state would have the wherewithal, the means, the training, in fact, any of what it takes to blow up an enormous pipeline in, miles down under the sea. Um, but this suggests actually that it's a, it's a private group. What does that mean? Yeah, I have to say I'm, I'm with Kadri here. I mean, all the um, sort of uh, military and explosives experts that I spoke with all said that this, you know, a, an extremely large amount of explosives explosives were used. Um, some experts even say that close to a ton of of uh, of uh, TNT was used. So, so you know, you would need somebody with the underwater cap- uh, capability to transport almost a ton of explosives to a very strategically chosen um, um, uh, uh, locations close to the so as to sort of uh, destroy the pipelines, but also not harm. Let's remember this is a very heavily trafficked area, so as not to harm any of the any of the traffic there. So you know, it's it's just very difficult to think that Ukraine, uh, some 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 Ukrainian volunteers would have would have done it. And then there's also you know the point of of what would Ukraine gain by doing it? Um, we know that this is a country that is very keen to join. NATO and to carry out such an attack against um, that it, what is really key infrastructure so close to NATO countries of Germany and and Denmark and aspiring NATO countries Sweden you know this would just be very very um, counterintuitive from from Ukraine to do it. Um, but we also Kadri have to ask the same question of Russia. The fact is, why would Russia be engaged? in such a huge act of self-sabotage that it would blow up a key pipeline that connected its supply of natural gas to the likes of Germany? Well, when it happened, there was speculation that Russia wants to put pressure on, on Western Europe by denying gas deliveries. And for Russia, it would have been convenient to resort on force majeure uh, as opposed to breaking very publicly its contractual obligations. So that kind of makes sense, but that doesn't mean it it was Russia. On the other hand, of course, if Russia wanted to keep energy dependence of European countries on Russia, then they must have realized that blowing up the pipelines is a very risky act in that context. I have no informed view as to Russia's involvement. Um, Petra, you have uh, had extensive, made extensive attempts to try and get some official line out of something somewhere. But the question must be must be asked: What is it, or what is in the is in the U.S. intelligence interests to start pointing the finger at Ukrainian operatives here? That's a very, very good question. We all know that um, a couple of weeks ago, um, um, Pulitzer Prize-winning American uh, journalist Seymour Hersh released his theory that basically blamed the U.S. for the sabotage, and the U.S. has has uh, very vehemently denied um, carrying out this this attack. So you know, it could be argued also that the U.S. by blaming blaming the Ukrainian operatives is kind of trying to to distract um, the investigators or, or or the media from from looking further into the US but this is all this is all uh, theorizing theorizing at this point Petri and Kadri I'll go I'll go to you first Kadri then so do you think we will ever find out who planted the explosives on the Nord Stream pipelines uh, I don't know well um, just to add briefly to the last question um, from the US side they have actually used intelligence leaks also to 
So I've sent subtle warnings to Ukrainians. If you remember, at one point there was intelligence that, uh, that said US didn't assist Ukrainians in attacking the Crimea bridge. And that by some people was interpreted as US cautioning Ukraine not to um, be aware ambitious in the endeavors, because as we know, American administration is very concerned about escalation management and they they really have their own red lines as to how much Russia should be armed, which they try to follow. So that could also be a potential explanation here. As to will we find out, I don't know. Well, maybe after the war, I, I think, you know, if we live long enough for the archives to open, I guess it will come out from somewhere. And to be honest, that could be the way to handle it. Just put it aside and focus on the things that matter now, because stirring up that thing will will not really help us with anything at the moment. Petri, one word to you. Will we ever find out who did it? You know, I have to surprise you and say that some of the uh, experts actually believe that uh, Sweden might actually already know that they have in their position, you know, a lot of explosive residue and materials that they have researched in, in examined in the labs. But they, it's a political uh, reason to withhold this uh, this information for as long as Sweden and Finland are still outside of the uh, NATO alliance. So. Um, it could well be, as, as Katja said, that after the war is over and when Finland and Sweden are in the NATO, that this information is released. Kadri Leek and Petri Bertsov, thank you both for joining us on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Briefing. Here's Paige Reynolds now with a quick look at the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Emma. The head of Russia's Wagner mercenary group claims his forces have taken full control of the eastern part of the Ukrainian city of Bakhmut, the scene of one of the bloodiest battles of the year-long war. If the claim is true, it would mean Russian forces control nearly half the city in their costly push to secure their first big victory in several months. Five women denied abortions in Texas despite facing life-threatening health risks have sued the state over its abortion ban. The Centre for Reproductive Justice said it is the first time pregnant women themselves have taken action against anti-abortion laws passed across the US since the Supreme Court removed constitutional protection for abortion rights last year. And European space officials have called for establishing a separate time zone on the moon. The European Space Agency said the effort is part of a larger project to create a complete communication and navigation system for the moon. Back to you, Emma. Thank you very much indeed, Paige. There have been violent protests in the Georgian capital, Tbilisi. They were in response to Parliament backing a new law which critics say could limit press freedom and civil society. Critics say it's reminiscent of a Russian law that's been used to crack down on dissent. Well, joining me to discuss it is the civic activist and director of Tbilisi Pride, Georgie Tabagari. A very good afternoon to you, Georgie. Good afternoon to you. So just briefly summarise, what is this new law? Uh... This is, an, this, this is a new proposed bill uh, by the Georgian uh, government, uh, which uh, ruling Georgian Dream Party, um, basically, which is a copy of um, the Russian law, um, uh, the foreign agents law, which basically um, uh, targets civil society, media and everyone who is getting uh, foreign funds. And um, as you can imagine, in Georgia, this is a rather wide range of group because um, uh, pretty much 
within the pro-Western discourse of the country, a lot of NGOs and civil society has been um, being funded by the, uh, the pro-Western institutions. And this is an attack basically to the Georgia CU integration path. Georgian government is trying to uh, take this to the off-road and directly trying to uh, capture the state, um, which has been the reality for the past couple of uh, weeks now since they started to actively promote this bill. Um, and there has been very clear statements from the European Parliament, from the EU institutions, that this bill is going to uh, affect the Georgia's EU integration path. Uh, but yet, uh, Georgian government is uh, disregarding all the um, uh, recommendations from the West and plus disregarding the citizens who are protesting on the streets. So what has prompted the Georgian government to adopt this direction? Uh, I do believe my understanding is that this is a wider geopolitical uh, matter. I mean, as, as you know, uh, Russia is trying to take away Ukraine and there is a war going on there. The same, they are trying to do the same in Moldova and uh, the very same tactics are used uh, in Georgia as well. This is the uh, state capture orchestrated by pro-Russian forces. Uh, because this is uh, this this is the reality for us. If Ukrainian government is fighting for their independence, we already have a collaborationist uh, government which is uh, pretty much cooperating with the Russian forces at the moment. I mean that 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 would surprise many. I would I would imagine, given the fact that Russia on the doorstep, UK, Ukraine acting as a as a potent reminder of the threat from Moscow. Um, what is what could pull Georgia back towards Moscow when the, the, the independence has been so hard fought for? Um, well, as Georgia, as Ukraine and Moldova and a lot of Soviet republics, uh, we all had uh, 30 years of independence so far, but this is in danger. This is what is happening exactly in Ukraine uh, and in different forms. It's happening in a wider region as well. Russia claims that the former Soviet republics are uh, still under their interest and th this is this is sabotaging democratically elected governments in different places like Ukraine and Moldova and in Georgia they practically uh, are sabotaging program and the uh, pro EU integration and NATO integration is written in the constitution of Georgia and basically derailing from this uh, with this proposed bill and this is, as we can call uh, a coup or a uh, state capture or whatever name we can call it. But this is basically Russia trying to take away uh, Georgia's democratic future. There are still checks and balances, though. The opposition are, are, are clearly fighting this proposal. And indeed, opposition leaders were arrested yesterday. But we also have the Georgian president who said that the law, if it crosses her desk, will be vetoed. There is a strong chance that this won't go through, isn't there? Um, there, there is a strong opposition to the bill, um, and this uh, further exceeded to any potential dimension that I could imagine. I've never seen uh, Georgians so united, and that applies to any field, basically, from sports to uh, politics to celebrities. Everyone is uh, vocal about uh, against this law and saying that EU integration cannot be questioned. Um, and it's it's great that the president is also on the forefront of this. Basically, she is going 
she promised that she will veto the the bill, uh, even though Georgian Dream has a constitutional majority and they can overrule the bill probably. But it prolongs the process itself, and it gives us a chance to uh, to put pressure individually also on the MPs who have voted on the first time on people who are generally supporting this. And this protest is growing in the streets of Tbilisi. And uh, I'm sure. I mean, there. I'm, I'm still hopeful. Uh, there is a hope that this unity will um, force some positive changes, uh, but at the moment um, we are not sure. It can go to either direction. It can be like Belarus-style authoritarian uh, regime, which will use the forces against people, which happened yesterday, um, or we might win this and uh, take the control to uh, democratically elected institutions. At the moment, Georgian Dream pretty much controls all branches of government. And uh, yesterday, they also took away the last bastion of uh, independent institutions. They uh, they basically posted um, a, a new public defender, uh, completely disregarded the recommendations of the Western institutions and the, the civil society organizations as well. So in that sense, uh, they are repressing, but there is also awakening happening uh, in the civil society and it might backfire uh, to Georgian dream government. Very briefly, Georgie, in this pulling in, of, of Georgia in different directions, how much role does the fact that the EU is currently considering Georgie's application for candidate status? How, much, how important is that? Because we've had the EU foreign policy chief saying this proposed law is incompatible with the EU's values. It is all about uh, this law, basically. Georgia got 12 uh, recommendations uh, that was supposed to be fulfilled, uh, but not much has been done on this. Uh, on the contrary, Georgian government has been doing everything possible, basically, to get off-road from the EU integration path. Um, and um, and this bill, uh, I mean, we got clear recommendations um, from the EU delegation, from the high officials from the EU, um, and uh, this, was, this didn't stop them. Um, so at this point, uh, Georgian government uh, moved to the point when they disregard the uh, recommendations from our partners uh, that applies to the EU and to, to Washington as well. Um, and uh, that's why there were quite critical statements yesterday coming from State Department and from the U uh, European Union as well. Um, we all know that this is basically us losing the historic opportunity to uh, integrate with the EU and unfortunately Russia and with the force of uh, Georgian dream government is uh, fully sabotaging it at the moment. Georgie Tabagari, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Georgie. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. You asked, we delivered. Welcome to The Concierge, a travel show from Monocle, brought to you in association with Allianz Partners. This week, we take a stroll through one of the most historic cities on Finland's southern coast. I set out to explore Porvo and its charming 15th century old town. Soon, my tote bag was filled with artisanal chocolates and licorice that Porvo is famous for, as well as some great Finnish design and walk the renovated boardwalk on Miami's South Beach. It's a public space on which life unfolds, as much for those who live in the area as it is for those just passing through. The Concierge, in association with Allianz Partners. Listen via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio.
And you're back with the briefing with me, Emma Nelson. Now, the Pritzker Prize has been awarded this year to David Chipperfield. He's the first Brit to win architecture's most prestigious award since Richard Rogers in 2007. A lover of the wider potential architecture has in improving our lives, especially for those of us who call cities our home, he's recently argued that retrofit isn't just the right thing to do, it's actually the more interesting thing to do. Well, joining us in the studio to talk about this is Monocle's design editor, Nick Muniz. Hello, Nick. Hi, Emma Nelson. Good to have you behind the microphone. Oh, it's always fun to be here. Um, so just tell us a little bit about David Chipperfield. You know, people across the world will be familiar with his work, but just remind us a little bit, because this is an award for a body of work, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, actually, I was, I was sort of looking, uh, you know, we knew the, the prize was going to be announced yesterday uh, evening Europe time, uh, and I was kind of looking through potential, you know, architects that haven't won it that I think would be worthy. And, you know, Chipperfield certainly comes up. You've also got Frida Escobedo, Kengo Kuma. I thought it might be amongst those three. So it was quite exciting to see uh, David win it. He, for, well, because it's his body of work, maybe we can dive a little bit into his career. So he gradu- he's born in London, graduated from the Architectural Association in 1977. And then I found this quite interesting, worked for Norman Foster and Richard Rogers, both Pritzker Prize winners, uh, before setting up his own practice in uh, the 80s. He's since gone on, I, I guess he rose to prominence uh, in the late 90s with the River and Rowing Museum in Henley-on-Thames, uh, which sort of maybe started to set this direction. I mean, we, we, we'll get to retrofit in a, in a moment, but I guess the Pritzker is about honouring a body of work. So we're, we're going to start to see some trends developing. And certainly, you know, in this in this River and Rowing Museum, it became quite obvious early that he was, he was really interested in making sure that his buildings worked with the local vernacular, worked with the local architecture. Uh, the roof line he, he used on that structure... Uh, I guess, sort of built upon what was already there. You see a sort of similar new thing develop uh, by the by the early 2000s with his Mexico City Museo Jumex Museum, uh, which again was about working with local craftspeople. Uh, cut forward to 2022 and the, and the Procurate Vecchi in Venice, and he's looking at entire retrofits rather than knocking building down, really working with the interior and building on that. So you kind of have these these trends that start to develop across so the course of his why career. why is it that he's been awarded this now? I mean, he's, what, 69 years old? Mm. And Pritzker is really tricky. We were talking about this before mm. we came came on air, that is this a sort, of, a, a sort of a retrospective or is this something that is saying that actually we're talking about someone who is still discussing the highly relevant issues that are plaguing our city planners and our architects? 100%. I mean, again, the Pritzker is about a body of work. So we're not looking at an individual project. And I think that's what makes this so significant. Uh, we're looking at, at somebody who's done consistent good work and is helping to set the agenda. So, you know, I guess what I was trying to do by touching on those previous things that have, I guess, become imbued in his work, working with the local vernacular, working with local craftspeople, and now this real emphasis on, on I guess, working with the existing building and working with the existing cityscape. Uh, the, the prize jury is almost saying that's the benchmark that architects need to be working towards. Uh, and, and, and I guess that's what makes I feel like him a, a worthy winner because he, he's touching on all these different threads that should just be imbued in any good architectural project. And he's shown time and time again that he can build them in and execute them in a way that's good for the city that it's in, but also good for the people that are, that are living in and, and using these buildings. What was interesting is it's in 2019 that he was um, one of the guests at the Monocle Quality of Life conference in Madrid. And in an hour-long conversation with our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, that his deep love for making a city livable and human was the one thing that he sort of expressed a little bit, if I can remember rightly, it's nearly four years ago now, but I I felt a sort of sense of frustration that that sometimes the human element of architecture gets, or or cities gets 
gets left out. And this is something that he really cares passionately about, isn't it? I think so. And I, I think you do see it in, uh, I guess, in a, in, a, in a lot of his buildings and the way that they, I guess, interface with the city that they're in. I actually ride past a Chipperfield design building every day on my, on my way to work. Uh, it's called Hoxton Press. It's in, in Hackney in East London. And the way that this, this structure, these two towers have been built and designed is that each of the, it's a hexagonal shape. So each of the people, each of the residents in the building has a a a balcony that fronts onto a view that isn't obstructed by any other structure, isn't obstructed by any of their neighbouring balconies. So it's connecting people with the city that they're in, and and, and I guess giving them a way of living that, that gives it a dignity that you might not necessarily get in a tall in a in a tall uh, yeah construction building. And he's also said that there's a, there needs to be a sort of a dignity as well inherent to the architecture profession, that when cities decide that they're going to put something up or a, a, or a prime minister decides that he wants 40 new hospitals built, that it's not often thought that recognise that actually the architect needs to be part of this, that the whole process needs to be to, to be planned out. So when you see someone who's as high profile here in the UK as, as, as Chipperfield who gets the great prize hopefully that should be a boost for architecture here in Britain. Yeah, I mean, you'd hope it has knock-on effects. I mean, frustratingly, sometimes architects' fees are seen as, you know, if you're looking at a cost-cutting exercise and where, you know, the economy's not in great shape, the architects' fees might seem excessive and it's like, hey, let's only bring them in later or we'll consult with them early and then ultimately, you know, just go and work with with a builder and, and, and do it ourselves. Hopefully... You know his work, and and again, it's a, it's a body of work that is standing up to the test of time. And uh, you know the, his his buildings, you still want to be in, and you still want to go to. And hopefully, that can communicate that. You know, investing in an architect, investing in architecture and and and, and good design isn't a, a short sighted thing that that you know is only on a, a on a bottom line for your end of year financial statements. It's something that's going to have carry on and follow on effects. Uh, so commissioning someone like uh, David, if you can afford it, or another or another good architect, uh, is certainly a wise move in the in the long term. It's it's not just about that year on year bottom line. Nick Manish, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. You with the briefing. Finally, to the kingdom of Bhutan, the film Lunana, a yak in the classroom, follows an aspiring singer whose dreams are put on hold when he's appointed to a teaching job in the remote village of Lunana. The movie is a feat in many ways, a directorial debut filmed on location in the Bhutanese hills using only solar power and with a cast who'd never before acted it then became the first and only film from the country to be nominated for an Oscar. Monocle Sophie Monaghan-Coombs caught up with the director, Power Chuindoji, and began by asking him to describe the film's setting. Lunana is the most uh, remote village in Bhutan. I think I can say with confidence that it is one of the remotest human settlements in the world. To get to Lunana, you have to walk about 10 days from the nearest road, and it continues to be one of the only human settlements in the world that still to this day, they don't have electricity connections, uh, road, and uh, even internet and television. 
And it's a fantastic setting for the film and we'll come a little bit later to some of the practical challenges of of filming. But I wanted, first of all, the story follows a young teacher who is really desperate to leave the country and move to Australia and pursue his, his dream of being a singer when he is, as part of his job, he's placed in Lunana to become the school teacher there. And I wondered where the idea of that story and how you decided you want to follow the journey of this young man, where that came to you. Well, you know, uh, Sophie, whenever I tell people I'm from Bhutan, I can almost guarantee that the next question will always be, you must be very happy. My country is known around the world for being the happy country because uh, we have something called gross national happiness than gross domestic product. So I wanted to touch upon a story that was about seeking happiness. You know, in my country, even though we are known as a happy country, the reality is that we are a third world country. We are a very poor country. And as with many poor countries, we have this huge, almost like migration of people uh, leaving, uh, ironically, leaving the so-called happiest country in search of their happiness in other places. And uh, most of these destinations where they go to seek their happiness are the Western world, uh, you know, the developed, the urban worlds. And in this case, uh, Australia, uh, right now, hundreds and if not thousands of Bhutanese are leaving Bhutan to seek their happiness in Australia. So I wanted to create this story where if we are seeking what we seek in the glittering lights of the modern world, I wanted to create the storyline where we take the protagonist at the opposite end of the spectrum which was the most remote, the most desolate village in Bhutan, which happens to be Lunana. And Lunana is so remote that even the word itself, Lunana, means the dark valley. So the message, the theme of the movie is really, can we discover in the shadows and darkness what we truly seek for in the light? It's amazing stuff. And I wanted to come back to the challenges of filming. So... You filmed in this incredibly remote place with a cast of largely unprofessional actors as well. Could you tell me more about how how that worked and what some of those challenges involved? Lunana, as I said, was very remote and many people tried to convince me not to make a film there, but I really wanted to capture the purity of this place. Everything for our equipment, our, uh, you know, because there's no electricity there, we had to carry our solar panels. We had uh, about 75 mules that worked throughout the year to transport all our equipment, you know, all our basic like living amenities as well. For example, we are so high, you know, we are about 5,000 to 5,500 meters above above sea level that we're even above the tree levels. So, you know, for fuel, we had to carry our firewood, you know, from the tree line up to Lunana, living up there with the locals, you know, we think of ourselves as strong mountain people. But when we're in Lunana, it's very difficult. It gets very cold. By 6 p.m. every night, it's dark, no light bulbs. Um, We couldn't shower for the entire duration of the shoot. And the whole project was solar powered. So I always told my crew that, you know, even if the film failed and no one watched it, we can take pride in saying that we made a carbon negative film when it comes to the cast, you know, uh, one of the reasons why I was so adamant to shoot up there was 
because I wanted to capture the authenticity and the purity of the people. So, uh, you know, we casted local villages to play themselves. And once I casted them, then, you know, I spent time with them learning about their lives, their, you know, uh, their struggles, their hopes, their dreams. And then I incorporated their stories into their characters. So this film is almost like a docu-feature because, you know, my only instruction to them every time we went on set was like, hey, you just have to share your story with the, you know, with us here. Many of the uh, act, all, actually all the actors, uh, as you mentioned, are first time actors. And many, many of the local people up in Lunana, they are acting for the very first time, but then they have no reference. You know, they have never been growing up and living in Lunana. They have never seen a cinema. They don't know what the cinema is. They have not even seen a car. You know, it was on our film set that they tasted sliced bread for the first time in their lives. So for them, you know, to act on a film, I think what actually helped was because they had no reference. It was just so pure. And that was a director, Pao Chunin Dorji, in conversation with the monocle's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Lunana, a yak in the classroom, is in cinemas now. And that's all we have time for today's edition of The Briefing. Thanks to my guests and to the producer, Paige Reynolds, researcher Monica Lillis, and our studio manager, Nora Hall. The Briefing's back at the same time tomorrow. For now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>